Chapter Four of Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Piotr Natter. Darkness and Daylight, or Lights and Shadows of New York Life. Chapter Four by Helen Campbell. New York Newsboys. Who they are, where they come from, and how they live the waves and strays of a great city how shall one condense into one chapter the story of an army of newsboys in which each individual represents a case not only of survival of the fittest but of an experience that would fill a volume they are the growth of but a generation or two since only the modern newspaper and its needs could require the services of this numberless host out of the thousands of homeless children roaming the streets as lawless as the wind, only those with some sense of honor could be chosen. Yet what honor could be found in boys born in the slums, and knowing vice as a close companion from babyhood up? This question answered itself long ago, as many a social problem has done. The fact that no papers could be had by them, save as paid for on the spot, and that a certain code of morals was the first necessity for any work at all, developed such conscience as lay in embryo, and brought about the tacitly understood rules that have long governed the small heathen who supply this prime need of the businessman, the morning and evening papers. Most of us have never bothered ourselves about how the newsboy lives. We know that he exists. We are too apt to regard him only as a necessary evil. What is his daily life? What becomes of him? Does he ever grow up to man's estate, or are his interests never increased? Though it is by no means true that all newsboys are wanderers, yet most of those seen in New York streets have no homes. Out from the alleys and byways of the slums pours this stream of child humanity, an army of happy barbarians, for they are happy in spite of privations that seem enough to crush the spirit of the bravest. Comparatively few in number before the war, they increased manifold with the demand of that period, and swarm now at every point where a sale is probable. Naturally, only the brightest among them prospered. They began as street rats, the old name of the police for them, and pilfered and gnawed at all social foundations with that recklessness and energy of their prototypes. Their life was of the hardest. Driven out from the dense in tenement districts, where most of them were born, to beg or steal as need might be they slept in boxes or under stairways and sometimes in hay barges in coldest nights of winter two of them were known to have slept for an entire winter in the iron tube of a bridge and two others in a burnt-out safe in wall street sometimes they slipped into the cabin of a ferry-boat old boilers were a favorite refuge but first and chief then and now came the steam gratings where at any time of night or day in winter one may find a crowd of shivering urchins warming half-frozen fingers and toes or curled up in a heap snatching such sleep as is to be had under adverse circumstances watch a group of this nature their faces are old from constant exposure as well as from the struggle for existence their thin clothes fluttering in the wind afford small protection against winter's cold and are made up of contributions from all sources often rescued from the rack picker and cut down to meet requirements shoes are of the same order but worn only in winter 
the toes even then looking stockingless from gaping holes stopped sometimes by rags wound about the feet kicked and cuffed by every ruffian they meet ordered about by the police creeping into doorways as winter storms rage they lose no atom of cheer and shame the prosperous passer-by who gives them small thought save as a nuisance to be tolerated they are the pertinacious little chaps who spring up at every crossing almost at every hour of the day and night and thrust a paper under your nose they run to every fire and are present wherever a horse falls down or a street-car gets into trouble or a brawl is in progress they are the boys who play tospenny in the sun in the city hall park who play baseball by electric light who rob the pushcart of the italian banana seller who can send a copper a block away and who always have a plentiful supply of crocodile tears when caught in flagrante delicto the tiny fellow who flies across your path with a bundle of papers under his arm found out almost before he ceased to be a baby that life is very earnest and he knows that upon his success in disposing of his stock in trade depends his supper and a warm bed for the night though so young he has had as many hard knocks as are crowded into the lives of a good many folk twice his age he is every inch a philosopher too for he accepts bad fortune with stoical indifference homeless boys may be divided into two classes the street arab and the gutter snipe the newsboy may be found in both these classes as a street arab he is strong sturdy self-reliant full of fight always ready to take his own part as well as that of the gutter snipe who naturally looks to him for protection gutter snipe is the name which has been given to the more weakly street arab the little fellow who though scarcely more than a baby is frequently left by brutalized parents at the mercy of any fate no matter what this little chap generally roams around until he finds some courageous street arab scarcely bigger than himself perhaps to fight his battles and put him in the way of making a living which is generally done by selling papers in time the gutter snipe becomes himself a full-fledged arab with a large clientele this is the evolution of the newsboy wherever he be found some of them bring up in penal institutions in reformatories and no wonder their mornings are too apt to be spent in pitching pennies or frequenting policy shops they are passionately devoted to the theatre and they will cheerfully give up a prospect of a warm bed for the night for an evening in some cheap playhouse their applause is always discriminating they despise humbug whether in real life or on the mimic stage the cheap morality current in bowery plays where the villain always meets his just deserts gives them a certain standard which is as high as can well be when one lives among fighters stealers gamblers and swearers after squandering his earnings for an evening's entertainment of this sort a convenient doorway or a sidewalk grating through whose bars an occasional breath of warm air is wafted from underground furnaces in winter are often the only places he has to sleep this is the boy who is the veritable street arab the newsboy pure and simple you can see him early any morning hugging some warm corner or huddled into some dark passage waiting for the moment where the papers shall be ready for distribution their light-heartedness is a miracle merry as clowns flashing back repartee to any joker keen and quick to take points they manage their small affairs with a wisdom one would believe impossible their views of life have come from association with flashmen of every order 
with pugilists, pickpockets, cockfighters, and all the habitués of pothouses or bucket shops. Yet Charles L. Brace, of the Children's Aid Society, who knew them best and did the most for them, wrote, The newsboy has his code. He will not get drunk. He pays his debts to other boys and thinks it dishonorable to sell papers on their beat, and if they come on his, he administers summary justice by punching. He is generous to a fault and will always divide his last sixpence with a poorer boy. Life is a strife with him, and money its reward. And as bankruptcy means to a street boy a night on doorsteps without any supper, he is sharp and reckless if he can only earn or get enough to keep him above water. His temptations are to cheat, steal, and lie. His religion is vague. One boy who said he didn't live nowhere said he had heard of God, and the boys thought it kind of lucky to say over something to him which one of them had learned when they were sleeping out in boxes. Almost forty years ago, these were the conditions for hundreds, as they are today for thousands, though philanthropy has fought every step of the way as industrial schools, lodging houses, and homes bear witness. Chief among these rang the newsboys' lodging houses, in many respects the most unique sight to be seen in New York. A thousand difficulties hedged about the way of those who first sought to make life easier for this class, not the least of which were how not to assail too roughly their established opinions and habits, nor to touch their sturdy independence. They had a terror of Sunday schools, believing them only a sort of trap to let them suddenly into the house of refuge or some equally detested place. Even when the right sort of superintendent had been found, and a loft had been secured in the old sun building and fitted up as a lodging room, the small skeptics regarded the movement with great suspicion and contempt. It was in March 1854 that the new quarters were opened. A good bed, a bath, a supper, the first two for six cents, the last for four, was evidently a fact. But behind this fact, what dark design might not lurk? They formed their own theory at once. The superintendent was to their mind undoubtedly a street preacher, and had laid this elaborate trap to get them into the house of refuge. They accepted this invitation for a single night, which they concluded would be better than bumming, that is, sleeping out, but they planned to turn it into a general scrimmage in the schoolroom after they had cut off the gas and end with a fine row in the bedroom. Never was there a blunder or more benevolent reception of such program. Gas pipes were guarded, the ringleaders were sent down to the lower floor, where an officer was in waiting, and up in the bedroom, when the first boots flew from the little fellow's bed across the room, he found himself suddenly snaked out by a gentle but muscular hand and left in the cold to shiver over his folly. Mysteriously it dawned upon them all that authority reigned here and was getting even with them, and they finally settled down to sleep, suspicious still, but how believing good might be meant. The night went on, broken now and then by ejaculations from the new tenants, my eyes, ain't these soft beds? I say, Jim, this is better'n bummin', ain't it? Hi, Pat, it's most as good as a steam gratin', and not a cup to poke you up. A morning wash and a good breakfast completed the conversation. One and all they went out sounding the praises of the Fulton Lodge, which soon became a boy's hotel, one loft being known to them as the Astor House. Often the boys clapped together to pay the fee for the boy who wanted to try it and had no pennies saved, 
and each one came at last to look upon the place as in degree his private property. No word as to school had yet been spoken, but one evening the superintendent said, "'Boys, there was a gentleman here this morning who wanted an office boy at three dollars a week. "'My eyes! Let me go, sir!' and "'Me, me, sir!' came in loud voice from scores of excited boys. "'But he wanted a boy who could write a good hand.' Deep dejection among the boys, who looked at each other blankly. "'Well, now, suppose we have a night school and learn to write.' the superintendent ventured. "'All right, sir,' sounded from a dozen of the most unruly. Soon the evening school began, and the tired little fellows struggled with their copybooks and readers, learning, however, with surprising success. Already they had been taught to sing together in the evening, generally preparing for the ceremony by taking off their coats and rolling up their sleeves, but no mention had yet been made of any Sunday meeting.' A great public funeral produced a profound impression upon them, and the superintendent for the first time read them a little from the Bible. They were astonished at what they heard. The golden rule they declared to be impossible for fellows that got stuck and short and had to live. Miracles from Holy Writ created no surprise, and they found great satisfaction in learning that a being like Jesus Christ was homeless and belonged to the working class. Whatever gentle elements were in them seemed to find expression in their singing. There's rest for the weary was a great favorite with these untiring little workers, and there's a light in the window for thee, brother. They sang with the deepest pathos, as if they imagined themselves wandering alone through a great city by night till some friendly light shone out for them. The early days of those boys' meetings were stormy. The boys, as is well known, are exceedingly sharp and keen, and somewhat given to chaff. Unhappy was the experience of any daring missionary who ventured to question these youthful inquiries. How to break up their special vice of money-wasting was the next problem, and this was accomplished by opening a savings bank and letting the boys vote as to how long it should remain closed. The small daily deposits accumulated in such degree as to amaze their owners. The liberal interest allowed pleased them and stimulated economy, and thus was formed the habit of saving which is now regarded by all of them as part of the business. Often three hundred dollars and more are deposited in a month, and this has done much to break up the habit of buying policy tickets, though that remains a constant temptation. The old building soon proved inadequate, and another one was taken at 49 and 51 Park Place, which was retained for many years. Its superintendent had been in the British Army in the Crimea, and was a man of excellent discipline, but generous in feeling, and a good provider. The house was kept clean, as a man of war's deck, and no boy ever left the table hungry. His wife was equally valuable, and many a man, once a newsboy, looks back to both as the closest friends his youth ever knew. In 1869 and 1870, 8,835 different boys were entered. Many of them found good homes through the agency of the Children's Aid Society. Some found places for themselves, and some drifted away no one knows where, too deeply tainted with the vices of street life for reclamation. In this same year, the lads themselves paid $3,349 towards expenses. What sort of home is it that their money helps to provide? The present one, with its familiar sign, Newsboy's Lodging House, 
on the corner of Duane and Chambers Street, is planned like the old one on Park Place. The cleanliness is perfect, for in all the years since its founding no case of contagious disease has occurred among the boys. The first story is rented for use as shops. The next has a large dining room where nearly two hundred boys can sit down at table. A kitchen, laundry, storeroom, servants' room, and rooms for the family of the superintendent. The next story is partitioned off into a schoolroom, gymnasium, and bath and washrooms, all fully supplied with cold and hot water, a steam boiler below providing both the latter and the means of heating the rooms. The two upper stories are large and roomy dormitories, each furnished with from fifty to one hundred beds or berths, arranged like a ship's bunks, over each other. The beds have spring mattresses of wire and are supplied with white cotton sheets and plenty of comforters. For these beds, the boys pay six cents a night each, including supper. For ten cents, a boy may hire a private room, which consists of a square space curtained off from the vulgar gaze and supplied with a bed and locker. The private rooms are always full, no matter what the population of the dormitories may be, showing that the newsboy shares the weakness of his more fortunate brothers. After midnight, the little lodgers are welcome to enter the house, but later than that they are not admitted. Once in, he is expected after supper to attend the night school and remain until the end of the session, and once outside the door, after the hour of closing, he must make the best of a night in the streets. Confident of his ability to take care of himself, he resents the slightest encroachment upon his freedom. The discipline of the lodging-house, therefore, does not seek to impose any more restraints upon him than those which are absolutely necessary. He goes and comes as he pleases, except that if he accepts the hospitality of the lodging-house, he must abide by the rules and the regulations. Supper is served at seven o'clock, and is usually well patronized, especially on Mondays and Thursdays, which are pork and bean days. Every boy has his bed number, which corresponds with the number of the locker, in which he keeps his clothes. When he is ready to retire, he applies to the superintendent's assistant, who sits beside the keyboard. The lodger gives his number and is handed the key of his locker, in which he bestows all his clothing but his shirt and trousers. He then mounts to the dormitory, and after carefully secreting his shirt and trousers under his mattress, is ready for the sleep of childhood. The boys are wakened at different hours. Some of them rise as early as two o'clock and go downtown to the newspaper offices for their stock in trade. Others rise between that hour and five o'clock. All hands, however, are routed out at seven. The boys may enjoy instruction in the rudimentary branches every night from half-past seven until nine o'clock, with the exception on Sundays, when devotional services are held and addresses made by well-known citizens. A large majority of the boys who frequent the lodging-houses are waifs, pure and simple. They have never known a mother's or a father's care, and have no sense of identity. Generally, they have no name, or if they ever had one, have preferred to convert it into something short and practically descriptive. As a rule, they are known by nicknames and nothing more, and in speaking of one another, they generally do so by these names. As a rule, these names indicate some personal peculiarity or characteristic. On a recent visit to a newsboy's lodging house, pains were taken to learn the names of a group of boys who were holding an animated conversation. It was a representative group, 
A very thin little fellow was called Skinny, another boy with light hair and complexion, being nearly as blond as an albino, was known only as Whitey. When Slobbery Jack was asked how he came by his name, Bumlets, who appeared to be chief spokesman of the party, exclaimed, When he eats, he scatters all down his self. Yaller was the name given to an Italian boy of soft brown complexion. Near him stood Kelly the Rake, who owned but one sleeve to his jacket. In newsboy parlance, a rake is a boy who will appropriate to his own use anything he can lay his hands on. No one could give an explanation of Snoddy's name, nor what it meant. It was a thorough mystery to even the savants in newsboy parlance. In the crowd was the snitcher, a fellow what tattles, said Bamlet contemptuously, and nearby stood the king of crapshooters. A crapshooter, said Bamlet, is a fellow what's fond of playing tosspenny, throwing dice, and going to policy shops. The king of bums was a tall and rather good-looking lad, who, no doubt, had come honestly by his name. The snipe-shooter was guilty of smoking cigar-stubs, picked out of the gutter, a habit known among the boys as snipe-shooting. Hoppy, a little lame boy. Dutchy, a German lad. Smoke, a colored boy. Pie-eater, a boy very fond of pie. Sheeny, skittery, bag of bones, one lung peat, and Scotty were in the same group. And so also was Jake the Oyster, a tender-hearted boy who was spoken of by the others as a, quote-unquote, a regular soft pudding. Every boy shown in the full-page illustration was proud of the fact that he carried the banner, that is, was in the habit of sleeping outdoors at night. Only the bitterest cold of winter drove them to seek the shelter and warmth of the lodging-house. An empty barrel or dry goods box, deserted hallways, dark alleys, or the rear of buildings were the only sleeping places these boys had at night from early spring to midwinter. The sixty thousand dollars required for fitting up the building was raised in part by private subscription and in part by an appropriation of thirty thousand dollars from the excise fund by the legislature, it being regarded as just that those who do most to form drunkards should be forced to aid in the expense of the care of drunkards' children. This fund grew slowly, but by good investment was increased to eighty thousand dollars, and with this the permanent home of the newsboys in this part of the city has been assured. It is their school, church, intelligence office, and hotel. Here the homeless street boy, instead of drifting into thieves' dens and the haunts of criminals and roughs, is brought into a clean, healthy, well-warmed and lighted building where he finds room for amusement, instruction, and religious training and where good meals, a comfortable bed, and plenty of washing and bathing conveniences are furnished at a low price. The boy is not pauperized, but feels that he is in his own hotel and supporting himself. Some are loaned money to begin business with, others are sent to places in the city or far away in the country. The whole class are partly redeemed and educated by these simple influences. The pauper is scarcely ever known to have come out of these houses, and self-help is the first lesson learned. Since the foundation of the first New Boys Lodging House in 1854, the various homes have sheltered nearly 250,000 different boys, at a total expense of about $450,000. The amount contributed by the lads themselves during these years is nearly $175,000. Multitudes have been sent to good homes in the West. To awaken the demand for these children, 
Thousands of circulars were sent out through the city weeklies and the rural newspapers to the country districts. Hundreds of applications poured in at once from the farmers, especially from the West. At first, an effort was made to meet individual applications by sending just the kind of boy wanted. Each applicant wanted a perfect boy, without any of the taints of earthly depravity. He must be well made, of good stock, never disposed to steal apples or pelt cattle, using language of perfect propriety, fond of making fires at daylight, and delighting in family worship and prayer meetings more than in fishing or skating. The defects of the first plan of immigration were speedily developed, and another and more practicable one inaugurated, which has since been followed. Companies of boys are formed, and after thoroughly cleaning and clothing them, they are put under a competent agent and distributed among the farmers, the utmost care being taken to select good homes for all. The parties are usually made up from the brightest and most deserving, though often one picked up in the street tells a story so pitiful and so true that he is included. Once a dirty little fellow presented himself to the superintendent. Please, sir, I'm an orphan and I want a home. The superintendent eyed him carefully. He saw amid his rags a neatly sewed patch and noted that his naked feet were too white for a bummer. He took him to the inner office. My boy, where do you live? Where's your father? Please, sir, I don't live nowhere, and I hain't got no father, and me mother's dead. Then followed a long and touching story of his orphanage, the tears flowing down his cheeks. The bystanders were almost melted themselves. Not so the superintendent, grasping the boy by the shoulder. Where's your mother, I say? Oh, dear, I'm a poor orphan, and I hain't got no mother. Where is your mother, I say? Where do you live? I give you just three minutes to tell. And then, if you do not, I shall hand you over to the police. The lad yielded, his true story was told, and a runaway restored to his family. An average of three thousand a year is sent to the West, many of whom are formally adopted. A volume would not suffice for the letters that come back, or the strange experiences of many a boy who under a new influence grows into an honored citizen. The following letter is but one of thousands received from these boys. Yale College, New Haven. Reverend C. L. Brace. Dear Sir, I shall endeavor in this letter to give you a brief sketch of my life, as it is your request that I should. I cannot speak of my parents with any certainty at all. I recollect having an aunt by the name of Julia B. She had me in charge for some time, and made known some things to me, of which I have a faint remembrance. She married a gentleman in Boston, and left me to shift for myself in the streets of your city. I could not have been more than seven or eight years of age at this time. She is greatly to be excused for this act, since I was a very bad boy, having an abundance of self-will. At this period I became a lawless vagrant, roaming all over the city. I would often pick up a meal at the markets or at the docks, where they were unloading fruit. At a late hour in the night... I would find a resting place in some box or hogshed, or in some dark hole under a staircase. The boys that I fell in company with would steal and swear, and of course I contracted those habits too. I have a distinct recollection of stealing on to the roofs of houses, to tear the lead from around the chimneys, and then taking it to some junkyard and selling it. With the proceeds I would buy a ticket for the pit in a cheap theatre, and something to eat with the remainder. This is the manner in which I was drifting out in the stream of life 
when some kind person from the Children's Aid Society took me in charge. Two years after one of your agents came and asked how many boys who had no parents would love to have nice homes in the West where they could drive horses and oxen and have as many apples and melons as they could eat. I happened to be one of the many who responded in the affirmative. Twenty-one of us had homes procured for us in Indiana. A lawyer from T, who chanced to be engaged in court matters, was at N at the time. He desired to take a boy home with him, and I was the one assigned him. He owns a farm of two hundred acres lying close to town. Care was taken that I should be occupied there and not in town. I was always treated as one of the family. In sickness I was ever cared for by kind attention. In winter I was sent to the public school. The family room was a good schoolroom to me, for there I found the daily papers and a fair library. After a period of several years I taught a public school in a little log cabin about nine miles from T. There I felt that every man ought to be a good man, especially if he is to instruct little children. Though I had my pupils read the Bible, yet I could not openly ask God's blessing on the efforts of the day. Shortly after, I united with the church. Previous to this, I had attended Sabbath school at T. Mrs. G. placed me in one the first Sabbath. I never doubted the teachings of the scriptures. Soon my pastor presented the claims of the ministry. I thought about it for some time, for my ambition was tending strongly towards the legal profession. The more I reflected, the more I felt how good God had been to me all my life and that if I had any ability for laboring in his harvest, he was surely entitled to it. I had accumulated some property on the farm in the shape of a horse, a yoke of oxen, etc., amounting in all to some three hundred dollars. These I turned into cash and left for a preparatory school. This course that I had entered upon did not meet with Mr. G.'s hearty approbation. At the academy I found kind instructors and sympathizing friends. I remained there three years, relying greatly upon my own efforts for support. After entering college last year, I was enabled to go through by the kindness of a few citizens. I have now resumed my studies as a sophomore, in faith in him who has ever been my best friend. If I can prepare myself for acting well my part in life by going through the college curriculum, I shall be satisfied. I shall ever acknowledge with gratitude that the Children's Aid Society has been the instrument of my elevation. To be taken from the gutters of New York City and placed in a college is almost a miracle. I am not an exception either. W.F., who was also taken west, in a letter received from W. College, writes me, I have heard that you were studying for the ministry. So am I. I have a long time yet before I enter the field, but I am young and at the right age to begin. My prayer is that the society may be amplified to greater usefulness. Yours very truly, J.G.B. The stranger in New York can hardly find a more interesting sight than the gymnasium or schoolroom through the week, or the crowded Sunday night meeting where the singing is always a fascinating part of the program. Thanksgiving Day, with its dinner, is no less amusing and suggestive. The boys watch all visitors and know by instinct how far they are in sympathy with them. They call loudly for talk from anyone whose face appeals to them. Often they make speeches on their own account. Here is a specimen taken down by a stenographer who had been given a dark corner at the end of the room and thus was not suspected by the boys. 
Mr. Brace, whose appearance always called out applause, had brought down some friends, and after one or two of them had spoken, he said, "'Boys, I want my friends to see that you have some talkers amongst yourselves. Whom do you choose for your speaker?' "'Paddy! Paddy!' they shouted. "'Come out, Paddy, and show yourself!' Paddy came forward and mounted a stool. A youngster not more than twelve, with little round eyes, a short nose profusely freckled, and a lithe form full of fun. Bummers, he began, snoozers and citizens, I've come down here among ye to talk to ye a little. Me and me friend Brace have come to see how ye're all getting along and to advise ye. Ye fellows what stands at the shops with your noses over the railing and smelling of the roast beef and hash, ye fellows who's got no home, think of it, how are we to encourage ye? the rise of laughter, and various ironical kinds of applause. I say bummers, for ye're all bummers, in a tone of kind patronage. I was a bummer myself. Great laughter. I hate to see ye spending your money for penny ice creams and bad cigars. Why don't ye save your money? You fellow without no boots over there, how would you like your new pair, eh? Laughter from all the boys, but the one addressed. Well, I hope ye may get em. Rather think you won't. I have hopes for you all. I want you to grow up to be rich men, citizens, government men, lawyers, generals, and influence men. Well, boys, I'll tell you a story. Me dad was a hard-on. One beautiful day he went on a spree, and he comes home and told me, Where's your mother? And asked him, I didn't know. And he clipped me over the head with an iron pot and knocked me down. And me mother draped in on him, and in it they went. He hiss and demonstrative applause. And at it they went again, and at it they kept. You should have seen him, and whilst they were a-fighting, I slipped myself out at the back door, and away I went like a scared dog. Well, boys, I went on till I come to a home. Great laughter among the boys. And they took me in. Renewed laughter. And then I ran away, and here I am. Now, boys, be good, mind your manners, copy me, and see what you'll become. A boy who wished to advocate the claims of the West, to which he was soon to go with a party sent out from the Children's Aid Society, made a long speech, a paragraph of which will show the sense of humor which seems to be the common property of all. Do you want to be newsboys always, and shoeblacks, and timber merchants, in a small way selling matches? If you do, you'll stay in New York, but if you don't, you'll go out West, and begin to be farmers. For the beginning of a farmer, me boys, is the making of a congressman and a president. Do you want to be rowdies and loafers and shoulder-hitters? If you do, why then, you can keep around these diggings. Do you want to be gentlemen and independent citizen? You do? Then make tracks for the West. If you want to be snoozers and bummers and policy players and Peter Funkman, why, you'll hang up your cups and stay round the groggeries. But if you want to be men to make your mark in the country, you'll get up steam and go ahead. And there's lots on the prairies waiting for the likes o' ye. Well, I'll now come off the stump. I'm booked for the West in the next company from the lodging house. I hear they have big schoolhouse there, and a place for me in the winter time. I've made up me mind to be somebody, and you'll find me on a farm in the West, and I hope yes will come to see me soon. I thank ye, boys, for ye patient attention. I can't say no more at present voice. Goodbye. The newsboys' lodging houses are like the ancient cities of refuge to these little fellows, and yet there are cases which the lodging houses never reach. 
Recently, said the gentleman, I found a tiny fellow playing a solitary game of marbles in a remote corner of the city hall corridors. His little legs were very thin, and dark circles under his big grey eyes intensified the chalk-like pallor of his cheeks. He looked up when he became aware that someone was watching him, but resumed his game of solitaire as soon as he saw he had nothing to fear from the intruder. "'What are you doing here, my little fellow?' I asked. The mite hastily gathered up all his marbles and stowed them very carefully away in his capacious trousers' pockets. Then he backed up against the wall and surveyed me doubtfully. I repeated my question, this time more gently so as to reassure him. "'I'm waiting for Jack the Robber,' he piped. And then, as he began to gain confidence, seeing no signs of swipes about me, he added, "'Him as brings me the tallies, dailies, every day.' "'And you sell the papers?' "'I sell em for Jack,' he promptly answered. I was glad when I looked at the lad's attire that he was protected for the time being by the comparative warmth of the corridor. Outdoors it was cold and blustering. Still I resolved to wait and see Jack the robber. Shortly after three o'clock, a short, chunky boy with a shock of black hair hustled through the door and made in the direction of my pale little friend. He was struggling with a big mass of papers and was issuing orders in a rather peremptory tone to his diminutive lieutenant. "'Do you know this little boy?' I asked. Jack the robber gave me a look which was not reassuring. "'Does I know him? Of course I knows him. What the bleep!' why don't you send him home to his mother he's neither big enough nor strong enough to sell papers at this jack gave utterance to an oath too utterly original for reproduction then he said that ere kid ain't got no mummy i looks after that kid myself i slipped a coin into jack's hand and urged him to tell me the whole story he dropped his heap of papers tested the coin with his teeth slid it into his pocket and began blokes is always axing bout that ere kid but you is the first one whatever raises the ante. That ere kid don't know no more about his mam and me. Cause why? Cause he ain't never had no mummy. Here Jack paused, as if determined to go no further, but another coin gave wings to his words. That ere kid, he resumed, ain't got no more sand than a Jack Chinee. He'd be killed only for me. He can't come along the row or up the alley without getting his face broke, so I gives him papers to sells and looks after him myself. I asked Jack where the kid and himself slept. I ain't giving that away, said he. Only taint no lodging house where you has to get up early in the morning. The kid and me likes to sleep late. The kid, however, was now eager to be off with his papers, and without another word the protector and protégé sped into the street, filling the air with their shrill cries. This is one case of a class which the lodging houses do not reach and other instances might be given. One little fellow of six years makes a practice of frequenting the lobby of one of the big hotels after dark. As soon as the streets become deserted, and the market for his paper ceases to flourish, he pushes open the heavy swinging doors of the hotel and proceeds to cuddle his cold little body close to one of the heaters. No employee has ever shown any disposition to dispossess the tiny newsboy. His shrill voice re-echoes through the stately recesses of the hall whenever he thinks he sees a possible customer, but although on more than one occasion irate officials have come rushing forth to exterminate the offender, one and all have paused dismayed before the absurd proportions and wonderful self-possession of the little waif. 
The brawny porter took the boy in hand one night and said with forced gruffness, Look here, young fellow, what do you come in here for? I don't know, said the morsel. Where do you live? I don't know. The boy, however, finally admitted that he had a home, but obstinately refused to say where it was. When he left the hotel, he was followed. He was a most lonely little specimen of humanity. He spoke to no other boys, and was accosted by none. In the end, he went to sleep in one of the dark corners of a newspaper counting room. Instances of this class of newsboys could be multiplied indefinitely. These are the absolute bohemians of their kind, who prefer a doorway to a warm bed, and the sights of the streets any time, and all the time, to the simple restraints imposed by the lodging-houses. The newsboy's life is filled with the hardest sort of work. His gains are not always in proportion, for he must begin often before light, huddling over the steam-gratings at the printing offices, and waiting for his share of the morning papers. He scares to work these off before the hour for taking the evening editions, and sometimes cannot, with his utmost diligence, take in more than fifty cents a day, though it ranges from this to a dollar and a quarter. The period of elections is the harvest time. A boy has been known to sell six hundred papers in two hours, at a profit of between eleven and twelve dollars. Among over twenty-one thousand children, who in the early years of the work were sent west, but twelve became criminals, and not more than six annually returned to New York. No work done for children compares with this in importance, and whoever studies the records of the Children's Aid Society will be amazed at the good already accomplished. Twenty-one industrial schools, twelve night schools, two free reading rooms, six lodging houses for girls and boys, four summer homes, and the crippled boys' brush shop are the record playing to all. But who shall count the good that no man has recorded, but which has rescued thousands from the streets, and given them the chance which is the right of every human soul? End of chapter 4